Are you familiar with the expression that people don't appreciate what they have until it's gone? We've all been there, haven't we, at one time or another in our lives? It's something we've all been guilty of. Maybe you moved away when you were young or fresh out of high school and you just missed that one recipe that your mom used to make and you try as hard as you can, but no matter what you do, you just can't quite replicate the taste. Uh, maybe you have, uh, your neighbor has moved or your boss has moved on to a different place. Now you've got a new boss, a new neighbor, and well, you didn't really realize what you had with that old boss, that old neighbor, until they've moved away and they're gone. Maybe there's a sport that you used to really enjoy playing, but now you just can't run up and down the court the way you used to. You can't jump as high. You just can't do the activity the same way. And you didn't realize really how much you enjoyed it until, well, you can't do it anymore. In one area in our life, we've probably all been there where we didn't really appreciate what we had until it was gone. You know, Paul, he recognizes that this is part of human nature. It's part of how, how we often live, and it also can be true in the church. And so Paul, he's writing to the church, and he's letting the church know, hey, no matter what age group you're in, this is what you need to focus on if you want to have a healthy church, a healthy family. Because one day, if you don't focus on these things, you'll wake up and your church won't be so healthy, your family won't be so healthy, and you won't really appreciate what you have until it's gone. And so in order to do that, you need to focus on what grace does. Grace is what gives us the ability to focus on these things, to do these things, to concentrate on these things. These are the ramifications of grace. And so Paul, he's going to talk a lot about grace as he finishes up chapter two. But before he does that, he's going to speak to one other group of people. A group of people who, they were in the family meeting, but they felt like they were maybe in the shadows. Maybe as Paul is speaking to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, well, they feel left out. They wonder if Paul's really speaking to them. So Paul, he makes no uh, bones about it. He speaks directly to them. I want you to see it. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Let's check it out. Paul writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, Paul, he's already addressed the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, but there is this one group that feels like they're in the shadows. They really don't fit into any of these things. And this is the group that Paul says here in ESV, bond servants, but really better translated, slaves. 
and they don't fit into these categories so nicely. Because while they may be in God's family and him being their master, at the same time they have an earthly master who's telling them what to do, how to live, so their life isn't really their own. And they're kind of wondering, do we really fit? Can we really exercise what you're saying? Is this what we're supposed to focus on? And so Paul, he speaks directly to them. Now before we go any further, I know that word slave is, is a charged word in our vocabulary. And I just want to point out a few differences and similarities of uh, slavery in Roman times versus the slavery we typically think of with the antebellum south. Now, when you look at different slaveries throughout the history of the world, there they look different. There's some similarities, but there's some differences. Roman slavery is different than antebellum slavery, and at the same time, it's different than Jewish slavery. However, there, here's a few things that I wanted to point out. Uh, in order to be a slave in the Roman world, several things would have had to happen. One, you could have been captured in a war. That was one way to become a slave. Another way to become a slave would be if your family owed some kind of debt to another family, and so then you were sold into slavery to kind of repay the debt. Another way to become a slave would be if you were a criminal, that this would be your punishment, that you'd have to serve as a slave for so many years. And another way of becoming a slave would be if you were a child of slaves, then, then you would be a slave. But So these are the primary ways that you would become a slave in the Roman world. So it's important to understand that in the Roman world, slavery was not ethnically based. Uh, and it didn't have the same stigma that we think of in the antebellum South, where people were looked down upon. After you uh, were done being a slave, there was a time limit on it. It wasn't usually your whole life. You'd work, you could earn money, and then, well, you could purchase your freedom. You could be free, and then, and then you could rise to any level in society. For instance, you may remember in Acts 24 that Felix, he was the governor that Paul met there. Well, the Bible tells us that he was a freed slave, so that he used to be a slave, he now became free, and he, ro he rose to this uh, position of power and authority in Rome. Um, in, in slavery, to be a slave in Rome, you could hold just about any job. You could be trained in how to be a doctor and how to be a teacher. So slaves were teachers, a shopkeeper. You could learn how to work with uh, wool and cloth or metal and these different types of things. Uh, so you could have just about any job. The only job that you couldn't have in Roman slavery was politics. You couldn't go into politics. At the same time, uh, it wasn't easy being a slave. No one would aspire to this. Some of their philosophers says no, no one would want to be a slave. Nobody wants to be owned by somebody. Um, but it was a natural way of life in the Roman world. It would lead to the downfall of Rome. It was one of the causes that led to Rome's downfall, slavery. Uh, it was so prevalent, so pervasive throughout the empire that it said that at the height of the Roman Empire, one one in four people were slaves. And so now Paul, he's talking to the slave. And this is interesting because while slaves could do just about any job in society, uh, once they were done with the job, well, then they were supposed to just kind of retreat back into the shadows, just kind of blend in with the wallpaper, uh, that kind of thing. Um, well, here, 
Paul, he doesn't talk to the masters, he talks to the slave. This gives the slave value. It shows them their intrinsic worth. And it would be unusual. Usually, if there's something concerning a slave that they need to know, well, you wouldn't tell the slave, you would tell the master. Hey, you need to tell your slaves this, 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 and this. Paul doesn't do that. He speaks directly to them, showing them how valued they are. And this is what he says. Hey, slaves, you know, those of you who feel like, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm just blending in here. I'm going unnoticed. I just, I, I don't know if I really have these role to play that you're talking about. Paul speaks directly to them and he says, here's what you need to do. Now, I recognize that none of us are probably in slavery, so how does this apply to us? Well, perhaps you have a job where you say, I, you know, I just can't talk about Jesus. If I were to talk about Jesus at my job, well, it would not go well for me. I would lose my job. I can't do that. Well, I think that this uh, section really speaks well to that about what you can focus on when you're working. He says, that hey, here's what you focus on. Obey your masters, or in your case, perhaps obey your boss in everything, your employer. Listen well. Do what's expected. Don't, don't make your employer have to tell you two or three times what you ought to be doing. Uh, you, you should do it. Do it right the first time. Work hard. Get the job done. This is that you should be well-pleasing. That is, the, you're, you're good-natured, you're easy to get along with, you're optimistic, you're not, you're not some kind of sour person, you're not always complaining, you're not always pointing out the problems, but you're helping to find the solutions. Uh, at the same time, you should not be argumentative. It is, you recognize who's in charge. I, I, I know that this person is in charge, I recognize that. It doesn't mean that you never counter a thought or you never you present another idea. But there's a certain way in which you do it, where it's easily understood that you're bringing this new idea forth, you're challenging this idea that's out there for the betterment of the company, for the good of the company. It also says you should not be pilfering. That is, you don't take three days to do one day's work. You work hard, you're, you're on the clocks, you're gonna maximize that time, you're gonna be one of the hardest workers there. You're not stealing from your job as a result of your laziness, but you're, you're working well, and you're demonstrating to all good faith. That is that you are dependable, you are trustworthy, that you're a worker of integrity, the kind of employee that everyone wants. So no, maybe you can't openly talk about Jesus, about your faith at work, well, Paul says, then you work like this. Why? Paul says, so that your boss, your master, your employer may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. You work hard in the hopes that your testimony of your hard work and the way that which you work, it will cause your employer to love God and to love God's word. Because sooner or later, if you work like that, your boss is going to ask, somebody's going to ask, Man, why do you work so hard? Why are you so committed to this? What, like, what, are, what are you doing? And you're going to answer, because my faith in God and my obedience to his word, this is just what I do. And so bottom line, you work hard as a testimony to those watching. You work hard as a testimony to those watching. Now, Paul continues and he gets to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, brings salvation for all people. So, what Paul's saying here is everything I've been talking to you about is directly empowered by the graciousness of God. 
So when I was talking to older men and older women and younger women and younger men, when I was talking to slaves and free, all of this is all dictated by the grace of God. And the grace of God, it brings salvation for all people. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what demographic you are, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. The grace of God has brought salvation to all men. So because of that, you focus on everything I've just told you about. Whatever category you fall into, you focus on those things. Because here's how grace works. Anybody can be adopted into the into God's family, but now that you're in God's family, here's how grace works out based on your role in the family. And so it's almost as if Paul says at this point, hey, let's just stop the bus, okay? Pull the car over. I really wanna make sure that you understand just exactly how grace works. Because yes, grace is a gift of God. We don't deserve any of this. But here are the ramifications of grace. Don't miss it. Don't take it for granted. Here's how it works. And so he begins, he says that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Do you think of grace that way? Do you think that grace works in your life that way? Because it does. Paul says that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He's almost personifying grace here and and says that grace shows up as a teacher in your life to teach you to say no to all this ungodliness, all this worldliness. And this word to teach, it, it refers to the way that you would teach a toddler, just patiently, watching over, lovingly. It's an informal kind of teaching that just happens continually throughout the day when these teaching opportunities, these teaching moments arrive. And if you've ever had to parent a toddler, you know that you're going to spend a lot of your time saying no. No, you can't touch that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't put that in your mouth. No, you can't, you can't behave this way. You, there's a lot of time saying no. And so here, Paul says that grace works like that. Great grace works as if to tell us no. Not in a formal kind of setting. Not not as if we're studying through his word. and Okay, through his word, I know I don't do this and I, I don't do that. No, but in an informal kind of a way. Where God's grace just kind of shows up and puts that check in our spirit that lets us know, you know, I probably shouldn't do that. You know, I probably shouldn't say that, that this wouldn't be right, that this would violate something. I just can't do it. In other words, God's grace, it condescends to each and every one of us to meet us right where we're at, our own personal needs, our own specific learning style. And all this is in the present tense. So Paul's saying, hey, if you missed the lesson that Grace was trying to teach you yesterday, well, don't worry, Grace has another lesson for you today. Grace is the constant teacher who teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And what are ungodliness and worldly passions? Simply put, anything that hampers your maturity as you're growing as a disciple of Christ. Anything that hampers that, anything that gets in the way of that, anything that does not align with the character of Jesus that's being conformed in you, well, that's the ungodliness and worldly passions that grace continually teaches us to say no to. It's interesting, isn't it? God's grace teaches us to say no. One of the aspects of grace, one of the ramifications of grace, is that God's grace teaches us to say no. But Paul's not done. 
He goes on and he says that grace at the same time, it also teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. God's grace doesn't simply teach us to say no. It does that, yes, but God's grace also teaches us how to say yes. And Paul, he's saying, hey, Christianity is not just this denial. Christianity is not just a a religion that says no, 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 no. There's an element of that, sure, you have to know what to say no to. But Christianity is also about embracing what is good. How we embrace joy, we embrace godliness. In other words, Paul also said it this way, that we put off the old man. We're saying no to all that stuff. And at the same time, we're putting on the new man. Grace comes along and says, as you put on the new man, here's what you're putting on. First thing, you're putting on sensibility. That is self-control. This is the characteristic that was repeated over and over again. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, self-control. Everyone in the family of God should exhibit self-control. Why? Because we are a family that is of a sound mind. Our mind doesn't bend with the whims of culture and the whims of circumstance. We embrace truth and therefore live accordingly. Paul also says that grace comes along and it teaches us to live in an upright way. That is, that we have this standard of what is right and we live according to it. You know, in our culture, our culture is just consumed with values. You look around, everybody has values. You have personal values, you have family values, the the values that made our country great. Uh, Every group seems to have their own set of values. Uh, You value life. Someone else values just getting to die whenever they want to. You value the cheapest kind of meat that you can find. Someone else values the organic, grass-fed kind of meat. You value uh, one thing. Someone else values another. And so values are kind of wishy-washy that way because the word value, it is subjective. It can be defined whatever you personally believe in, however you feel, whatever you want. And so people have values on just about everything. Uh, What's been lost in our generation is the word that values replaced. And you know what? We didn't notice it. We didn't appreciate it until it was gone. Values, it replaced the word virtues. And there is a world of difference between a value and a virtue. A virtue is defined as conformity to a standard of right. Therefore, where values are subjective to each and any individual and they can change in the moment, virtues are objective. Values, by definition, do not conform to any standard. Values can change. Virtues are fixed. They cannot change because they are affixed to a certain standard. Grace teaches us that sometimes that what we value is not that virtuous because it doesn't conform to God's standard of righteousness. Paul says that grace will teach us to live upright, virtuous lives because we are committed to an objective standard, the standard of God's word. And grace also teaches us to live godly lives. That is, that you develop an appetite for the things of God. You, you want to be a disciple maker. You want to be an encourager. You want to be hospitable. Grace teaches you to want to do that. It's not like, oh man, it's not eating your vegetables. You have to. Grace teaches you that this is good, that I want to. And where does that happen? 
Paul says that all of that happens in the present age. That right here and now, grace is teaching us to say yes. Yes for this moment, and yes for the next moment, and yes for the moment after that. That right here and now, grace teaches us to say yes. And Paul's not done. Because not only does grace teach us to say no, not only does grace teach us to say yes, grace also teaches us to wait for the appearing of Jesus who redeemed us and purified us and made us a people for himself, zealous for good works. It's interesting, when you go back and look through this, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. When did we want to say yes to that? In our past life, before we were in relationship with Jesus, these are the things that we wanted to say yes to. So grace comes along and it redeems our past. More than that, grace comes along and it redeems our future and says say yes to these things. So it's active today. Also, grace comes along and redeems our future. It says wait for this. Look forward to the day when Jesus comes again for his church. So we live presently with the future in mind and grace impacts it all. Grace impacts our past, it impacts our present, it impacts our future, it impacts everything. <laughs> Why? Because we realize that Christ has purchased us, that he owns us, that he paid for all of our lawless deeds, that he's redeemed our past, that he's purifying and cleansing our present so that we can live for the future. See? Understand that we are the most forward-thinking people on the planet. The, the Christian is not someone who just dwells, oh man, the yesterdays were so good. No, we are a people who live for the tomorrows. We are the most future-oriented, forward-thinking people on the planet because we live with the future in mind. Why? Because grace teaches us to do that. Grace, and so it's an element of ramification of God's grace to live with the future in mind. And so how important is all this? These ideas for how old men, old women, young women, young men, these ideas for slaves, how, how all these different demographic groups should live, this, this importance of grace, how important is it all? Paul says it's so important that he ends this way. He says, declare these things exhort these things. If people don't want to listen or if they try to get you to think of something else, you rebuke them with all authority because they're trying to lead you to stray. Don't let anyone disregard you. So Paul's saying this is critical stuff. That you, you don't just get the option, well, you know, maybe this sounds good, so maybe, maybe I'll live this way. No, this is critical. This is highly important because if you don't, if you don't allow grace to be your teacher and to teach you to live like this, to say no to these things, to say yes to these things, to live with the future in mind, if you don't embrace the things that you're supposed to focus on as, as an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a, a younger woman, or at your job, if you, if you don't embrace these things, well, the health of your church, the health of your family will be compromised. And you might not even appreciate it until it's gone. That is the thing about human nature, isn't it, sometimes? That we don't always appreciate what we have until it's gone. Well, in order to maintain a healthy church, a healthy family, Paul says, here's what you focus on. And how are you able to do that? It's God's grace working in and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your grace in our lives. God, we thank you that your grace is a teacher. 
So God, would you come alongside us through your spirit and by your grace, would you teach us what to say no to, what to say yes to, and to live with the future in mind. We recognize we need your grace. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.